Romans chapter 8, 18 through 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Lord, as we look at your word, help us, give us a picture of the glory that is ours in Jesus Christ that's to come. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to try something a little bit different tonight uh, that's in your favor if you're here in person. We're going to put up the passage on the screen and I'm going to mark it up because what I want to do for you tonight is to take you from maybe eating a meal to actually behind the scenes to where we're actually cooking the meal. So you can see some of the ingredients, you can see some of the process in the hopes that it'll help you study the Bible. So if you're watching online, maybe you're listening later on, you're still going to be blessed but you're not going to get as blessed as much as the people here. So that's an incentive to come to church, come to church in person. So if you are new here tonight, or maybe you missed one or two of these weeks that we've been going through Romans, I want to give you a brief flyover of Romans chapter 8, considered by many to be the greatest chapter in the Bible. We've entitled this series, Death to Life. And Pastor Corey kicked off Romans 8, with that very first verse where the Apostle Paul comes out of the gate with this amazing proclamation that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How many of you are excited about that good news? That when God sees you, he declares you not guilty. That Jesus Christ has freed you from your sins. And Pastor AJ, that second week, talked to us about why we're freed. We're free not because of anything that we've done, for God has done. God has done the work. He has freed us from our sins through sending His Son, Jesus Christ. But not only has Jesus freed us from our sins, but He's made us alive. Pastor Sean talked about that verse in Romans 8, verse 11, that if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. We have new life. We were dead to sin, or we were dead in sin, rather. And Jesus Christ made us alive by the Holy Spirit. We have a new desire. We have new spiritual senses. We have a new reason to live because Christ has made us alive. And then in verse 14, if that wasn't good enough, that Jesus saved us from our sin, made us alive, we get this incredible promise of our identity, that we are sons. And, and the Apostle Paul is not being a chauvinist here by saying, 
a son rather than a daughter, because in that time period, a son, a firstborn son, received an inheritance from the father. All of the family's wealth was passed on to that son. So as daughters and sons of God, we have received the inheritance of God. We're heirs to incredible promises, to the glory of God. Y'all are way too quiet for that kind of good news. Come on. Amen. God, this is the good news of the gospel. These are the first 17 verses that nothing that we've done is deserving of this. God has done it. He's given us this gift. And that's why we come to church. That's why we sing these songs. That's why we tell people about this good news because it's transformed us. But it leaves us this question, which is if the good news of verses 1 through 17 is so great, then why is so much of our lives characterized by suffering? For a people who've been freed, who've been made alive, who have been brought into the family of God, who've received an inheritance, why do we go through things that don't feel like good news? The last two weeks, I've talked to a couple individuals, a good friend of Elisa and, and mine, who lost her father. And she's, she's suffering with grief. Another teacher who reached out to us saying that this teacher had hoped that last year was going to be the worst of it for her teaching, teaching in COVID, but this year isn't any better. It's emotionally exhausting. She's suffering. Woman, dear woman in this church who's experiencing chronic pain. And so tonight I want to talk to you about hope when I'm suffering. Hope when I'm suffering. Now, let's look at the last part of verse 17, which the Apostle Paul is kind of wrapping up this section. Pastor Sean preached about it, and hopefully you're seeing it on the screen here in a second. We have this clause right here, provided. Everybody go, ooh, blue pen. <laughs> provided. So all of verse seven, 1 through 17 is this really good news. But then there's this condition, there's this if statement that something has to follow or something has to happen in order for verses 1 through 17 to apply to our lives. And it's that we, and I'm sorry this word is in here, suffer. Suffering is an unavoidable part of the Christian life. That if we suffer, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified. Now, we love that word glory, but the problem is that the path towards glory includes suffering. And so the Apostle Paul is going to expound on this idea of these two parallel tracks of suffering and glory, how they intersect, and how our suffering ultimately leads to a glory. Now, right out of the gate, verse 18, we have this amazing declaration. And Apostle Paul, in this passage that we're looking at tonight, this is his main thrust of his argument. It's right here. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So we make comparisons all the time. Who's the best athlete? What's the best city to live? And you give the pros and cons and you compare and contrast. 
But I had some family come in town. And if they were to ask me, what's the best restaurant to go to in Centerville? What would I tell them? This is easy. This is a no-brainer. Sweetwater. I'm surprised there wasn't a unanimous Sweetwater that came from you all. Sweetwater, it's no question. It's the best restaurant in Centerville. Maybe the best in Northern Virginia. But if they came to me and said, you know, that's really great, but there's also a restaurant really close by, about a block away, that's so great, they've sold over a billion hamburgers. Mickey D's, baby. The fries. The, the McFlurries. The McDoubles. And I even heard the McRibs back. Hallelujah. In anger, I would respond to them. No, you don't understand. Sweetwater does not belong in the same category as McDonald's. McDonald's is so far inferior to Sweetwater, we shouldn't even compare them. But just to prove to you how inferior McDonald's is to Sweetwater, let me tell you a little bit about the Aussie Rolls. Let me allow you to taste and see the goodness of the drunken ribeye and these chicken tenders that I don't know how you make chicken tenders that good. I get convicted because I'm ordering chicken tenders as an adult, but they taste like unlike any chicken tenders I've ever had. And then, then I, I don't want to take you to a whole nother level and catch you up in the third heaven, but we go to dessert and the white chocolate bread pudding. What more needs to be said? What I'm doing is I'm comparing these two to show you that there's no comparison. So Apostle Paul's going to make a comparison. And he's going to compare the sufferings of the present time with the glory that is to be revealed. Now, if there's any grammar majors, is to be revealed is what tense? Future tense. Man, I'm so glad you guys paid attention in 11th grade English to your grammar. Okay, so here's a comparison which the Apostle Paul is saying is really not a comparison, which is that present suffering is not comparable to future glory. In fact, future glory, the glory that's ours in Jesus Christ, is so much greater, you remember that greater than sign? Is so much greater than our present suffering. Now, here's why this is a startling non-comparison. Because for most of us, we don't think of our present situation as suffering. In fact, we have an anticipation and expectation that our present will be anything but suffering. In fact, it's the main thrust of how we live our lives is to avoid suffering. It's how we spend our time, our money, our energy, is to have our life being the most content and satisfied as we can. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I don't expect us to go around looking for suffering. Amen. But we choose our vacations on where will be the most pleasurable place for us to go. We choose a job where we'll find the most satisfaction. We choose the town where we live. It's close to family. It's close to our work. We choose the kind of car that's going to bring us the least amount of suffering. And yet, the Apostle Paul says that what categorizes this present age, including our job, including our car, including our home, including everything that there is about life here on earth, there's an element of suffering. Now, here's the other part of this, is that if I was to survey you all 
in maybe the top hundred topics you would want to have preached. I don't know what would be up there. I would assume, you know, relationships, uh, you know, maybe how to love your enemies. That might be like 99 or 100, right? Um, you know, how, to, how, to, how Jesus and politics intersect. You know, some of you guys are deep thinkers. You know, I want, might want some like how Jesus and ethics. You know, I don't know what you would choose. As, but I can imagine that probably, now I'm going to introduce a, th- a term here, the doctrine of hope wouldn't be on the top of the list. I don't know if it would make the top 100. And when I'm talking about the doctrine of hope, I'm talking about the end. And for most of us, the end is a little bit fuzzy. Like there's an antichrist and there's some beasts and there's like revelation and there's like the earth being burned up in fire and that's about as far as we know, right? We spend so little time thinking about the future, thinking about the glory because we don't really know what it entails or how it applies to our life. And yet in the greatest chapter of the Bible, let's just say that for the sake of argument, okay? That's why a lot of people, that's why we choose this this chapter, because many consider this the highlight, the greatest chapter of the Bible. In the greatest chapter of the Bible, the Apostle Paul thought it was important enough to put it right there in the middle and to make this comparison. So here's the pattern that we have. Here's us, and we're going to go through suffering. Paul says that's unavoidable. And for most of us, because we have no idea or concept of the future, and because we expect our present to not include suffering, when we go through the suffering, we get this, disillusionment. We get discouragement. And throw in another D, discontent. So we go through this suffering and it changes us for the worse because our expectations of what present life should be and what life in God should be is that God should heal us, God should save us, deliver us, set us free, should bless us financially. And those are promises. And those are things we should believe God for. If somebody's sick, I want to pray for them and believe God for healing. But if I don't have a theology of suffering and I don't have a doctrine of hope, what do I say to somebody who's experienced tragedy? I don't have anything to say. So the Apostle Paul's got to make his case here because he's making this comparison. He's saying, your life here, Northern Virginia, two richest counties in America, Loudoun County, Fairfax County, with amazing schools, and most of us, I mean, compared to the half of the world who's living on $2 a day, are living it good. He's saying, you're present is categorized by suffering, and the future where you're headed is so much better. And that's pretty hard for us to hear. And the good news is he's going to take the next four verses to prove it to us. I want you to look at these, this word, four, 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 four. And then we won't talk about this verse in detail today, but another one in verse 24. This word for, because, he's giving us explanation. He's grounding his argument in verse 18, with an explanation. What's his explanation? Okay, here's the first one. All of 19 through 23 is going to support verse 18. You see that? He's going to explain to us why 18 is so important. Here's the first reason, right here. Creation. Now, creation is not 
We know God created the heavens and the earth. He created the world in, in six days in Genesis chapter one, two. We have the account of that. But here when the Apostle Paul is talking about creation, he's not talking about you and me yet. He's going to get to us. Right? What he's talking about here is the animals and the seas and the mountains. Okay, he's talking about everything except for us. I'm going to show you that here in a second. And he says this in verse 20. He says the creation was, look at the text here with me, subjected to futility. Now this is an interesting word, futility, because it means ineffective. And I've seen attributes about God and studied attributes of God. God is loving, he's holy, he's righteous, he's just. But I've never seen someone categorize God as ineffective or anything that he's produced, anything he's created is ineffective. So how did God, who made everything good, remember Genesis 1, everything God made was good, right? He creates humans, it's very good. How could something that he created was good turn out to be ineffective? Do you see that, how that question should come to our minds here? Paul is saying that creation's been subjected to futility. So who has, who has subjected creation to futility? I mean, we have examples of this everywhere of creation being subjected to futility, of it being ineffective. I took my family as a part of uh, my kids' homeschool education. We took them to the Anacostia River, and we're getting this boat tour by this guy named Chris, a part of the Anacostia Watershed Society. And I asked him, you know, Chris, I mean, Chris is showing us, I mean, he was living for this job, right? I mean, he's showing us the turtles that are bathing on the stones. He's showing us this beautiful plant life. He's showing us these birds. And I mean, it's just a beautiful day. And I said, Chris, what is, this, what is the mission of Anacostia Watershed Society? What, what is the mission of the organization? He said, well, essentially, our mission is to make the Anacostia River swimmable and fishable. And it's not. You could swim, you could fish in there, but it's not good for you. And I said, okay, Chris, you're every day, you guys are doing restoration projects in this river, you're cleaning out trash, you're educating the population. What are the chances that this river becomes swimmable and fishable? You know what he said? Next to zero. Next to zero. Because there's so much pollution in there. And there's, there's soil that runs off into the bottom of the, the river that used to be 50 years ago, 40 feet deep, now it's 77 feet deep. And there's so much trash that gets washed into the river that likely you'll never be able to fish and swim in the Anacostia River. God's creation has been rendered ineffective. You're very silent, which I hope means you're processing. The wheels are turning. Okay. Secondly, you've drove on the road and you're driving and, you know, I don't know how you feel about animals, like chipmunks. But suddenly you heard a, Da-da! and you looked in your rearview mirror, and you saw, you saw Alvin dead in the middle of the road. Now, was it Alvin's fault that he jumped out in the middle of the road? Pastor June says yes. I think Alvin was just living his best life. He's enjoying life as God created him to be. Is it your fault? No, you don't have anything against Alvin. You're just driving. And suddenly, Alvin is killed. Now, it's a humorous example. But there's something amiss with that. That you didn't have anything. You didn't want Alvin dead, and Alvin didn't want to die. And yet, in a moment, Alvin is dead. Creation is ineffective. Thirdly, 
our new church is in Capitol Hill. There's some beautiful roses. I just read an article that there's this rose rosette disease. So all of these roses are suddenly dying. They don't, and it's because of this disease, and there's nothing they can do to cure the disease. Nothing they can do. So beautiful roses just, be, just are rendered ineffective, thrown away. You have to just separate them and throw them in the trash. Because something about creation has been tarnished. It's been stained. So the question is, who subjected creation to futility? It can't be us. We're not that powerful enough. I mean, I, none of us can, can have that kind of power over creation. It can't be the enemy. He's not power, powerful enough to overcome God. Who subjected creation to futility? Well, here's what Paul says. Because of him who subjected it. It's God. God has temporarily subjected his creation to futility. Temporarily. Now, here's why this is important. Because of the next word. Because of the next word. See, if you go to Genesis chapter 3, God, what happens at the fall? He tells Satan, he curses Satan, puts him on his belly. The woman's going to have pain in childbirth. And then he curses the ground because of Adam's sin. So God has subjected creation to futility. There's something about creation that longs for restoration. And here's why this is important, because of the next word, in hope. See, this is not a permanent situation, a permanent reality. God is heading, the plan of God is unfolding to a day where creation is restored. Now, many of us know the gospel, the good news that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We know the Bible has maybe four chapters. If you think in the Bible's overarching storyline, it's meta-narrative, okay? It's overarching storyline. We're going deep end of the, of the pool today, okay? We know that we have creation. We have the fall. We have redemption. That's what Jesus has done for us. But here's the last part that we don't know too much about, we don't talk too much about, and that's restoration, that God is not just interested in saving you. He's actually going to restore the whole world. He's actually going to renew this whole world, a new heaven and a new earth. That everything that he created that was perfect in the Garden of Eden will be restored to its perfect state. So yes, we are a huge part of that story. And you could even say we're the main part of that story. But God isn't going to just stop with us. He's going to stop. He's going to go until the whole world is restored and made new. That's the doctrine of hope. So we look at the futility of creation with an expectation and hope that the creation, look at verse 21, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So you and I, now think about this for a second, you and I will be reigning and ruling God's creation in that future glory, and all of creation will be restored under our rulership. You, you're not going to... See, we, there's a picture of God in heaven around the throne room where everyone's singing, holy, holy, holy. And that's the centerpiece of that restored Eden. He is on the throne in the middle. But we're not going to spend the rest of eternity just worshiping God. Now I'm really messing with your minds. Okay. I believe we're going to have... What we do here on this earth, some of us are singers, some of us are dancers, some of us are engineers, some of us are architects. 
Well, in the resurrected world, in the restored world, we'll be carrying out our gifts and our talents in a perfect way for the glory of God. So those of you who are architects, you'll be building things for God. Those of you who are singers, you'll be singing about the glory of God. Those of you, those of you who are dancers, you're going to be dancing in the presence of God. Those of you who are engineers, you're going to be constructing things and designing things. And without any of the frustration of this world, no sweat, no disease, no sickness, no death, you're going to be commissioned by God to spread his glory and to rule and reign over creation. That's something I want to sign up for. That's glory right there. Every dead squirrel, every polluted river, every terminally infested rose, it reveals a longing for restoration. That's what 21 is all about. Verse 21, creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And verse 22, we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Now, here's this analogy of a woman giving birth to a child. And if you were to tell a woman, hey, you're going to experience nine, ten months of extreme discomfort. You're going to have this baby 24 hours of crazy discomfort. And then you're going to push that last hour. It's going to be insane discomfort. But that, per that woman didn't know what was on the other side of that pain. How do you think she would feel about that process? Discouraged, discontent, disillusioned. But she knows that on the other side of that pain and that suffering is it's glory. It's glory. And all of creation is groaning. And what Paul is saying is what follows is it's not just groaning for no purpose. It's groaning for glory. Let's take a survey. Let's go weatherchannel.com, and let's just go to the best places in the United States. You want to go to California, man. It is 70 degrees every day, and you're by the water. I mean, it is beautiful in California, except for the fact that these terrible earthquakes. Or maybe you go to, like, the southeast Florida. A lot of people retire to Florida. I mean, very nice place. I recommend it if you want to retire there, except for, like, these things called hurricanes, or maybe Hawaii, like I wanted to go to Hawaii for our honeymoon. We didn't have enough money yet for Hawaii, so we settled for something that was really good, but not Hawaii. So Hawaii, beautiful, blissful, except when there's tsunamis and volcanoes. I don't want to be in Hawaii when a volcano is erupting. Or maybe you like the Midwest, you like the Midwest, you know, people are nice there, great barbecue, but there are these things called tornadoes. And then you go to the Northeast, like, we don't have a lot going for us, I'll be honest. Um, we do have wealth, maybe, maybe influence, uh, I don't know, power or something like that. But then we have these Nor'easterners and these blizzards. My point is, you go anywhere in the United States, and I'm just talking about our country, and what's inescapable is the groaning of creation, a longing for glory. Something about these earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes point to the fact that creation in its current state is a mist, but it's heading towards a restoration. Verse 23. So number one, creation. Number two, we're going to get to us. Here's, second, here's the second evidence that future glory is better than the present suffering. 
Paul turns to us. This is what he says. Not only creation, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. So we do have the Spirit. And all of our life isn't categorized by suffering. How many of you know verse 1 through 17 applies to us? There's incredible promises in there. We've been brought into the family of God. We're children of God. We have an inheritance. We've been saved. Don't forget 1 through 17. But remember, Paul's trying to address the suffering. And he's saying, just like creation groans, we groan. We groan inwardly. Yes, we believe in healing. Yes, we believe in deliverance. Yes, we believe we're more than conquerors. Yet we still live in a world of miscarriages, of stressful jobs, of horrific tragedies, of sons and daughters who are prodigals. We live in a world of suffering, and so we groan. So what do we do? What do we do in our groaning? Here's what Paul says. Look at verse 23 with me. We wait eagerly. We wait eagerly. That if you look at the top of that, over there it says us suffering. We don't have to be disillusioned, discouraged, and discontent. God wants to give us hope. That when we go through suffering and we have a doctrine of hope, we have lenses to look through that suffering. It produces a hope in us that all of a sudden that momentary affliction doesn't compare to the glory that's going to be ours. We wait eagerly. Now, my family, we just did the the stereotypical thing to do for a family living and ministering in Capitol Hill, we took a picture, a family picture with a U.S. Capitol in the background. And you try to wrangle up four kids under the age of six for a picture, it is one of the hardest things you'll ever do in your entire life. So what do I use to convince them that they need to go through this suffering of sitting still for 30 seconds? It's the promise of candy, of future glory. And they'll sit there for 30 seconds. They'll not hit their brother and sisters. They'll not scream. They'll not squirm because they know on the other side of that picture is glory. It's candy. And so we wait eagerly. We wait eagerly, just like a pregnant mother. I love what Eugene Peterson says. He says, waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We're enlarged with hope while we wait for that glory. We're going through suffering, but through the lens of that doctrine of glory, we are enlarged with hope, and we start seeing those momentary afflictions as just that, not worth comparing to the glory that's ours. Jesus gives us glory lenses, and any mom knows that she's going to make it through because of other moms who've made it through. And we know we'll make it through suffering because of someone else who went through that suffering. Jesus Christ. Jesus went through suffering and he experienced glory. And so if he went through suffering and experienced glory and we have an inheritance, that means we'll go through suffering and we'll experience glory. So how do we wait eagerly? get in the word. Because when we get in this Bible, when we study Romans chapter 8, when we spend time with God through the word, the word is a revelation of Jesus. We get enlarged when we're in the word. 
We get enlarged when we worship. When we're sitting up here, we're standing up here in the front and we're worshiping God, we're enlarged because we're getting a picture of glory. We're getting those glory lenses on and we're seeing our momentary afflictions for what they are. We call each other. We do life in community. We war together. We call someone when we're going through suffering and saying, hey, I'm going through this. Can you pray? And as we pray together, as we stand together, all of a sudden the suffering doesn't go anywhere, but we now have a lens of glory to see the suffering through. You know that Stephen, the first martyr of the, the Christian church, is going through in Acts this moment where he's been faithful to God, he's served He's taken care of these widows. He's been anointed. He's done miracles, healings. And what does he get for his reward? You know the end of the story? He gets stoned. He's getting stoned. And as he's getting stoned, he gets a picture. He'd been in the Word with the other apostles. He devoted himself to the apostles' teaching and to prayer, and to fellowship. He'd been devoted to the word, to worship, and to warring together, so that in his moment of greatest suffering, literally as the stones are hitting his body, and his body is coursing with pain, he gets a vision of glory. He gets a vision of the one who went before him, of Jesus Christ, full of the Holy Spirit. He gazes into heaven and sees the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He gets a picture of glory. Do you know what I want for you in this moment? Whatever suffering you're experiencing, no matter how big or small it feels, I want you to have a picture of glory. A picture of Jesus who went through that suffering and came out on the other side glorious. And he's reserved glory for you on the other side of your suffering. Father, we thank you You are a glorious God. Lord, you created this world and we messed it up through sin. You sent your son to redeem the world, to save us. But Lord, that's not the end of the story. You're sending your son to come back and to restore this world, to make a new heaven and a new earth, to give us new bodies and experience the fullness of what it means to be adopted as sons and daughters in you. Lord, I recognize in this room and watching online, there are people going through real suffering, pain in their bodies, dysfunction in their family, heartbreak, promises and hope that's been deferred. Lord, I'm asking that you would put a lens of glory over their eyes to see their suffering for what it really is, not comparable to the glory that's ours in you. In Jesus' name.